This is the Sports of Business Podcast, and today's featured guest is Mr. Dell Leonard Jones. Welcome, folks, to the Sports to Business Podcast, where we chat with executives and athletes on leveraging the principles in sports to win in the world of business. Welcome to the Sports to Business Podcast with your host, Tanvir, keynote speaker, head of technology, and a former college football champion. I chat with former athletes and executives on leveraging principles from sports to win in the business world. I'm so glad you could join us. Let's get started. On this episode, we have Mr. Dell Leonard Jones, an author and a former USA Today reporter for over 18 years, covering corporate management money section, who's worked with thousands of CEOs and wrote more cover stories than any other USA Today reporter in any section. He was selected twice by USA Today as USA Today's Enterprise All-Star Reporter. And he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for Beat Coverage. Recently, Mr. Jones wrote two novels, The Cremation of Sam McGee and At the Bat, The Strikeout That Shamed America, which ranks number nine on Goodreads for greatest baseball novels ever. You can find At the Bat on Amazon. Just go to the search bar and put in At the Bat. In this episode, we discuss Mr. Jones' early life and how he got started in journalism, history of the game of baseball, and just how much power the empires really had. Some of his stories during his interviews with CEOs of Fortune 500s, some of the things that he did to get in front of the right folks, building strong teams in business, and what he saw as strategies across the business landscape and the motivation and story behind his novel at the bat remember to follow mr jones on all social media handles and check out his book on amazon and guys if you like this episode if this resonates with you if you can relate remember to like subscribe and share on all our platforms wherever you hear your podcast all right folks without further ado let's jump in with the one and only mr del leonard jones Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode of Sports to Business Podcast. Today we have someone very special, someone that has really been around the block and knows their stuff, Mr. Dell Leonard Jones. So welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you on. Thank you, Tanvir. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I can, I, I'm a big fan of your podcast and I can guarantee you I am the worst athlete who has ever appeared on your show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we don't really, so, so we have a lot of athletes on the show. We have uh, executives, but I think you are really unique because you, I think, bridge the gap between both. And we're going to discuss that in this podcast. Before we dive in, um, Mr. Jones, just a quick introduction for the listeners. So a graduate of University of New Mexico, you specialize in sports writing. So I think you knew what you wanted to do from the moment you went to university. And then you're also an MBA from University of Texas at El Paso. You were a reporter for USA Today for 18 years. You had coverage of the corporate management money section, working with the thousands of CEOs. You wrote more cover stories than anyone else in any section. That is a true accomplishment. You were selected twice by USA Today, Enterprise All-Star Reporter, and you were nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, Prize in 2001 for beat coverage. Um, you also had the most Twitter presence than anyone on USA Today at that time. And you're a novelist. You have uh, two books, Cremation of Sam McGee and also At the Bat, which is now number nine on Goodreads for the greatest baseball novels of all time. What a great career. Can't wait to dive in, into all of these great things. Yeah, it's been fun. It really has and, uh, and different, different turns, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, uh, have done themselves, even at a much younger age, a lot of a lot of turns along the road in a career. Absolutely. I mean, so we'd love to dive into all of these turns and, and twists in your career. 
what are you doing right now, Mr. Jones? So what are you, what's keeping you busy right now? Uh, well, right now I'm letting my car battery go dead again for the second time. <laughs> Ever since COVID hit, I've been so homebound that I went out finally, to, I needed my car and it wouldn't start. And so I'm not very mechanical, but I said, well, I'm gonna replace my own battery. So I ordered a battery and replaced it. And I don't think I've started my car more than once or twice since I put the new battery in. So it's probably dead by now as well. So uh, COVID has really made me a homebound uh, person, yeah. that's for sure. As with most of us, right? Yeah. And, and I'm assuming you're living in a, in a colder climate? Uh, I live in, I live right next to Washington, D.C. It's okay. kind of like, who knows, you know, it's uh, yeah. kind of on that borderline where it can get real cold. It, it can yeah. be real mild this time of year. Yeah, I, I, so I recently moved to Dallas last year and for I never knew it snowed here. So I saw snow last week in Dallas. It was. Yeah, I saw that. Day. Yeah, I saw I got some pictures from from, from Austin, uh, from some of my yeah. Facebook friends that live in Austin and they were showing me this dusting of snow and I, I just messaged back to watch out for avalanches. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's uh it, it's 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 really it's funny because in Toronto so I'm from Toronto so we're going off topic here but in Toronto basically you know two feet and I'm sure you know it's like one or two feet's normal um you got snow tires on and you go and here when it started snowing I actually saw less people go outside it was just flurries so it almost shows about the perspective that you have when you're actually in a certain situation because you really don't know the other the other perspective because you haven't been there right so it's almost like it made me think that's almost the same as life it's like whatever you are whatever situation you're in whatever you're used to you start to really make um make its way and you start to really react to a situation based on what you've seen you know and i think it's good or bad in such certain situations right yeah i think it's uh it's pretty clear that people can get used to the conditions they're in that that is definitely true what have you, um, I'm really curious, actually, looking at your you know, profile, and I know we've been chatting an email. Let's just go back into early, early career, Mr. Jones. How do you actually know you wanted to do sports writing and journalism when you went to university? So how did that whole career track start? Yeah, I, uh, I always enjoyed writing. Uh, uh, and I was kind of surprised when I took my SAT test to go into college, I, I thought I would like score really high in English. And actually scored lower in English than I did in math and science, but I still pursued uh, the writing career because that's what I enjoyed. And, uh, and it was just evident to me from reading Sports Illustrated and Sports Magazine when I was a kid that the best writing was in sports. I mean, if, if you're a great reporter, you may go into another area, but if you're a great writer, uh, sports, I think, is the most creative outlet for that. So that's so then you, you saw it, you know, you, you didn't get a great SAT score, but you loved sports. And you said, this is something that could be where you can make a career. And then you just kind of went all in. Yeah, I did. And, uh, and I switched to business reporting when I was in El Paso. Uh, you know, I wasn't in a big enough market, you know, they, they have uh, university sports there, but I wasn't in a big enough market to cover like elite type sports, like professional sports, uh, really great collegiate sports. And so I kind of made a decision then that, and I'd heard that the fastest, just like a, they say that the fastest way to the major leagues is to be a catcher. Uh, the fastest way to a major newspaper is to be a business writer. And uh, I had an interest in business, you know, I always enjoyed business. Uh, so uh, I went in that direction. 
Although, you know, I still agree that sports writing, if you want to read good writing, you read the sports writing. So did you, and I think this is a great concept because we have a lot of student athletes who listen, right? Did you know that you're going to use business writing to find, get your foot on the door and then build a career into sports writing? Or did you just get started in business because that's what you thought you would do? Yeah, no, I, I stayed in, I stayed in uh, business writing throughout my newspaper career. But then when I, when I went into novel writing, I still had the love of sports. And I also had kind of wanted to do historical fiction because, you know, I was kind of done interviewing people. And so I went back with uh, At the Bat, The Strike Out, The Shamed America. It's, it's back when Casey at the Bat, the poem was written in 1888. And that was perfect because I could do all kinds of research, which I like to do, but I didn't have to interview anybody uh, because everybody was dead from that time period. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they all are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think that, that's really fascinating, right? Um, so let's, let's we'll keep going through your career track. So then you were at um, El Paso. And then what, so how was your career at USA Today? How, how did that evolve? Yeah, that, that took off from El Paso. Uh, USA Today and the El Paso Times and a number of other pay, newspapers were owned by a company called Gannett. And, uh, and their, their flagship paper was USA Today, but they had all these other smaller newspapers and USA Today was in the red for a long time before they became profitable. And to kind of fix that on their books a little bit, they like brought in reporters, uh, which they called loner reporters from the other newspapers for like four month stints to go work at USA Today, which, you know, the reporters wanted to do. But the local newspapers hated it because they're the ones that had to continue paying the, the salaries of these, of these reporters. So it was a way for Gannett to make USA Today to its shareholders look like it wasn't quite as, you know, bleeding ink, red ink as it was. And so I was one of those people. I went uh, from El Paso to uh, USA Today for what was supposed to be a four-month stint. And uh, I was lucky enough to be hired on full-time after I was there. That's, I mean, that is, you know, so on this podcast, right, and, and I chat with a lot of great folks who such as yourself, started in a career, but then the career took a turn and then they found something that they never thought was, you know, would be their career. How, so, I mean, just right off the bat, what kind of advice would you give a student athlete or even, even students nowadays that are trying to build a career or are fixated on one career? Because clearly you did not know that the four months are going to become your entire 18 years at USA Today. How should people think about, about that navigation in their career, if you want to call it that? Yeah, I'll give you the advice I would give myself if I could go back 30 years. I didn't, I didn't think about it at the time, but I, when, when I got out of school, I thought I wanted to go into law school, but I didn't, you know, I looked at the jobs in law and I didn't want those jobs. I didn't want to be a lawyer. They, they weren't kind of people you see on TV. They're kind of uh, mundane, crank out the hours kind of work. And so I didn't get a law degree, but looking back as a journalist, I would have gotten a law degree and then tried to work my way into like covering the Supreme Court. Uh, so you, you, you use your education uh, on something you're interested in, but if you don't want to do the work in that field, you figure out a way to spin that over into kind of the career that it'll, it'll work in. And, uh, you know, that example wouldn't work for everybody with just a law degree, but, you know, if you think about it, you know, they can probably take an interest of saying, you know, I'd like to study that, but I don't want to work at that. 
but how can I take that knowledge and apply it uh, elsewhere, kind of like a, you know, a, a yeah. skill stack kind of thing. Especially in today's world, because what you do in school is changing rapidly with technology, right? So I think um, if you can learn about a topic that interests you, but you know you don't want to have a career in that, you can learn about a topic, you get the insights, you understand the foundations, and then building a business or doing something that you can leverage that knowledge, I think makes total sense. It's a great way to put it. Yeah, and it, you don't always see it when you're in it, but I'm seeing it in my own children now. They're kind of early on in their careers, and I'm kind of seeing how kind of these odd things that they're interested in are kind of like, yeah, you know, playing a role in where they're headed, you know? Absolutely. In your um, USA Today, I know you met with a lot of, you know, CEOs and in your entire reporting career, um, business, sports, Let's dive into what was the most fascinating thing that you saw in, you know, the way these CEOs ran their business. And, and I know there's a lot of influence from sports. But what was that thing that you're like, you know what, this is crazy to almost an extent? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it, it's crazy so much as that the, the CEOs don't really fit kind of a, a, a mold. You know, I interviewed... Uh, hundreds of CEOs of top companies and their person, it just amazed me how the personalities weren't the same at all. I mean, there's, there's introverts. Uh, in fact, I think they've done surveys. There's almost as many introverts rise to like fortune 500 CEOs as there are extroverts. So it, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit uh, kind of, you know, I've, they do have to learn like an introverted CEO does have to learn how to be extroverted in the right situations I mean, they can't like just hide from everybody. Not talk. Yeah, don't talk. Uh, so they train themselves to be extroverted, uh, but you can't like really change your personality. Uh, and and so that that was always interesting uh, to me. And then I also did uh, the reason I want uh, they nominated for me for a Pulitzer for beat reporting is because I was like always like looking for these odd stories. And I did a story like CEOs who cheat at golf and. Uh, and so I, you know, I interviewed a number of CEOs and w one of my tricks was uh, you can't really get a CEO on the phone saying, you know, I want to talk to you about CEOs who cheated golf. Cheated golf yeah. I would, they call it collecting string and I would be interviewing for a couple of months, all these CEOs about kind of the projects they wanted to be talking about kind of their new product or whatever. And then I'd always have these, you know, two or three questions of these other stories I wanted to work on over time. And at the end of the interview, I would say something like, do you, do you cheat at golf? And since, you know, I had them, they either had to say no comment or answer the question. Yes. And, you know, every one of them, of course, said, no, I don't cheat at golf. And so I followed up, well, do you know CEOs who cheated golf? And they go, oh, yeah, you know, I played with CEOs all the time that cheated golf. And so I was able to, like, build the story based on that. And I did the same thing with uh, CEOs who were spanked as children. I mean, guy, you never, if I called the PR department of, uh, yeah. of Apple computer or something, I said, you know, I'd really like to get your CEO on the phone to ask him if he was spanked as a child, you know, they would just <laughs> laugh and hang up on me. But, but if you could get him for something else, in fact, I would always, when other reporters on other beats had executives into the office to be interviewed, I always, I would always ask to be invited to those 
interviews and I would sit there quietly and let them do their interview. I wouldn't interfere with the story they were working on. And then at the end, I would train them to, to, to say, Dell, did you have anything you wanted to ask? You know, when they were done with their interview and I'd say, oh yeah, I do. Uh, you know, that, were you ever spanked as a child? You know, and everybody would just kind of like roll their eyes. There goes Dell again, you know, but, but there, there they were, there they were kind of trapped and they would kind of have to answer. Have to answer. Yeah. They have to answer, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, and be, now I'm going to take a different angle here. Um, again, coming back to, you know, working towards getting something that you're looking to, to achieve. Uh, what this shows me, Mr. Jones, is you knew that you wanted to get a story of who cheated golf. And you were willing to put in the work to actually interview CEOs about something totally irrelevant so that you can get in front of them. And at the end, actually ask about what you really wanted to do, right? So I think that entire work and planning, it's it's tremendous like how much went into just for you to get that the final thing that you really were after yeah the, the trick is just kind of thinking ahead uh you know having a couple of story ideas for me it was stories it would yeah. be something else for other people but thinking ahead of what down the road do you want and how can i like do it while i'm doing my other work i mean they always, you've seen those boxes where they you know you do you do things that are like uh, important and uh, important, but not uh, crucial and, and that kind of thing. And, and there's that the one box that everybody forgets is things that are important to do, but aren't urgent. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, this, and this is this is something to me that was important to do. I wanted to write really good stories about CEOs, but you know, out of necessity, it wasn't urgent. So when I was doing all these other urgent things, I mean, they I was interviewing them for actual stories. It wasn't like I was just like faking them out that I wanted to talk to him about this. You know, I was actually writing these other stories, uh, but I was always do, looking at that box of uh, what is important and important to me was like a really good story. Uh, yeah. And out of necessity, it wasn't urgent. And so you, you always have to look at that, that box, that important but not urgent yeah. box. So you're, that, that's a great advice because I've been taught that in school and it's like, well, only focus on most important and most urgent um, because that's what really matters. And I think that that goes with the thinking that nowadays everybody's always about short-term results, right? It's all about quick, fast gratification. But do you feel that even in your career, right? Let's say you're, you're a young person who's, and maybe you're, give some advice here on a lot of the younger students here or athletes that are watching. If you have some sort of an aspiration, which is important, but not urgent to get there, you know, it's gonna take you some time to get there. Should you be actively planning on things that you should be doing today that'll help you get there? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, you definitely should. The trick is kind of like knowing where it is that you're headed. The North Star, right? Yeah, yeah. And when I, when I write, when I wrote my two novels, uh, it's really easy to kind of like go off into tangents when you're writing. And then at the end, all of a sudden, it, it's like impossible to tie it all back together. I think a lot of writers like get to that that stage where they they're doing all these subplots and everything, and then at the end, it just doesn't come together. So when I was writing the novels, I would like know what the end of the novel. You know, that that's the first thing I would think about is how is this book going to end? And then when you're writing and you're like going off on all these subplots and tangents, you just ask yourself, is am I going to bring, is, is that making me go toward the place I want to be at the end? And it, and it, it, it worked, you know, I didn't, 
I had to rewrite my book once because when I got through with the first draft, my most important character, who is the umpire and Casey at the bat, uh, when I read the book, it was, he was the most boring character. But I didn't have to change the plot at all. I just had to figure out how to make this character, my main character, less boring because all these other side characters were, to me, more interesting. And so I gave, I gave the umpire, uh, I put him on the spectrum, which uh, in 1888, nobody knew what the spectrum was, but, and, and it's not mentioned in the book, but anybody who reads the book and sees kind of the things that this umpire does, real, you know, the modern reader realizes he was on the spectrum. And that, cha that changed him from just kind of a boring umpire to kind of a more interesting character. And so I just had to, re I just had to rewrite the book uh, you know, it was a lot of rewriting to get that in, but at least I didn't have to tear it all up and and come up with a new story. And, and that's brilliant, right? Because you knew where your North Star was or what you wanted the book to deliver at the end. Um, I see a lot of that right now. So let's say in consulting, right? There's this thing where, uh, especially in, in, or, you know, you're an MBA and MBA students would, the mistake they would make first of first when a case presentation is not giving the solution up front. They walk through the analysis, they would walk through all the details, and then they'll say, we're a recommendation at the end of the presentation is this. And most of the times when they do that, the analysis doesn't really drive the recommendation. So what I've seen actually, and this is, I don't know, like, I think this is across every spectrum, whether it's writing, as novels, or as consulting, right away at the top, the great consultants would say, here is a recommendation, and we're going to walk you through how we came to this conclusion, Right. So I think this is a very similar concept of in your career, your North Star, here's where we're going to get to, here's the three or four different things I have to do in the next five years, writing a book, the ending, consulting, here's a recommendation. So I think having the North Star first helps you align all of your actions so that you can actually be working on things that will help you achieve your North Star. Yeah, I think that's right. In fact, I've read some academic papers and they have exactly that problem. You get to the conclusion and you go, wow, what a great conclusion. But where was, where was, all, the, where was all the information throughout the rest of it that kind of supported yeah. that and, or at least led to that? I mean, it may have been in there scattered around, but it was never focused enough toward, toward their conclusion uh, that, that you, know, you read the conclusion, you go, wow, that, you know, that, that's, a great pay, that's a great conclusion, but where's the rest, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, you mentioned your book, so let's dive into it, uh, Mr. Jones. So walk us through the, the book that you wrote, how you came up with the inspiration. I know you said you mine poems, and it's a poem from the 1800s. So what, what was that like? Uh, and, and just a bit more information on the book. You know, the first novel I wrote was The Cremation of Sam McGee, which is also built on a, a famous poem by Robert W. Service, one that my father, who is 96, uh, has memorized by heart. And so I grew up hearing that poem and actually tried to memorize it myself and, and only got about halfway through. And then I decided to write, write a novel about it, uh, mainly because when I, when I started writing novels, I considered myself a pretty good writer, but, but I, I had trouble like conceptualizing uh, an entire story that would fill a novel. And that gave me kind of the platform uh, a story, you know, that, that has a story and now I can build, you know, make up my own story kind of built around that story. And that's what I did with Casey at the Bad. It's, uh, it's got to be kind of like the most famous poem. And, uh, and there's definitely a story there. And everybody who's read the poem knows what the ending is. So I knew going in kind of everybody would know how 
the book ends, but I could, I could use my writing skills to like talk about not only, you know, at the game, but like what happened before the game and what happened after the game, you know, after Casey struck out, you know, what happened to him because, you know, he was now the goat and I had him basically becoming this strikeout king for another season. He, you know, he couldn't get his head together because all the fans were, were like, you know, hassling him at every game. Yeah. And then the, and then the umpire who, who I, who was telling the story, uh, I actually, you know, the reason I chose the umpire as the narrator of the book is because I'm a, I'm a sports official myself. I officiate three sports, uh, primarily high school level. You know, I'm not a high level official, but I know enough about umpiring and refereeing to know kind of what it feels like, uh, to be in that position where, you know, you know, either you missed the call and everybody hates you, or maybe you even got the call right, but half the people hate you anyway, because it was just so close that they're seeing it a different way. And so, yeah, that, that's why, that's why I wrote it from the umpire's point of view. Cause I thought I would have a pretty good perspective of that. I mean, I, I you're, that's, that's so bang on because we've lost some great games in my career at, in university football. And I think half the time it was like, you know, the referees didn't like us today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was, uh, I doubt if that's true. I mean, there's a possibility that that's true, but I yeah. doubt, I mean, they make officials make mistakes all the time, but I doubt if it's, they're doing it because they didn't like you. Although, uh, you know, there's some with enough, probably with enough thin skin that they don't go into the game that way. But if, if they're getting, uh, you know, hassled enough by, a, a player mm -hmm. or a player yeah you know i could you know it, it takes a little bit of bias <laughs> a, yeah a good, a good official like says no i'm gonna i have i have the fortitude i'm gonna call balls and strikes i'm gonna call this exactly how i see it no matter yeah. whether this coach over here is a really nice guy this coach over here is a really asshole and but it's you know it's my job to do it right down the middle yeah and I think most officials, at least when they get to an advanced level, uh, feel that way. Talking about baseball in the 19th century, I know um, you also mentioned something around uh, how women were an untapped market. Can you share that story and how that really led to revenue for the entire game of baseball? Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting. The, I found out when I was doing research on umpires back then that they, they didn't have the power to eject uh players and coaches they only had the power to find them and so uh of course they you know when they get, they got a lot of trouble they would find them probably a lot of money for those days uh but the team owners because they thought it was good for the gate for this kind of friction going on with the umpire uh they thought it was good for the gate so the the team owners would pay the fines and, uh, and so you can imagine how that turned out, you know, uh, an umpire thinks that he can control the players and the, and the manager by finding them. Well, he can't because the team owners are, are paying the fines and that actually, and I, I read a lot of, uh, newspapers from, from the late 1880s about, you know, just baseball games, baseball stories. And it was amazing that how often the reporters blamed the umpire, uh, for the loss. It was it was like just a common theme, uh, more so than today. I mean, if an umpire or a, a referee blows a call, there, you know, it's, it showed on replay on TV a lot. Uh, but you know, back then it was only newspapers, 
and it was just constant, you know, about half the stories. Maybe it was just the half stories where the team lost that the, news, the newspaper was reporting on, but it was always blamed on the umpire. And then finally, and a lot of them got beat up and, and, uh, and umpires back then, they were primarily former players. They were kind of like, they would hire recently retired baseball players to be umpires. And if you look, you can find a list of them on Wikipedia, all the, all the major league umpires. And if you go back into that, that time of period, you'll see that none of, hardly any of them lasted more than a season. They would retire from baseball. They would go into umpiring. And by the next season, they would be gone. And I think a lot of that is because they didn't like it and they quit. And another reason is because the team, own, the team owners every year got to vote how they selected the umpires. They got to vote uh, for the umpires they wanted. And so all, you know, if there were 10 teams, they would all maybe vote for their top five umpires they wanted. And so the, the ones that got the most votes would, uh, would be the umpires. And so, you know, as an official, I know that the more someone sees you, even if you're a good official, the more a player or a coach sees you, uh, the, they can start to lose respect for you because they forget all the good calls you make. But, you know, if, you, if they see you enough, they're going to see you miss a call or think that you missed a call. And so their, their impression of you kind of falls. And my guess is that these owners probably voted in brand new players thinking, well, they've got to be much better umpires than the ones we had last year. Yeah, and they voted in. And getting back to your question about women, the, the beating of the umpires actually stopped uh, or, or went down a lot when the team owners realized that there was a potential fan base among women. They started to notice that there were women in the stands. And, uh, and so they tried to clean up the game, kind of, kind of like cleaning up hockey, clean it up a little bit, uh, hoping they could get more women in, in the oh, attendance. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and I mean, hockey fighting has gone down in the past 10 years. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I remember the early two thousands when I was in, you know, school, I used to watch hockey. It was like, Hey, there's a fight. Toronto Domi would always fight every second game. You don't see that anymore. Yeah. And you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's deliberate. The old, the old joke, there was a fight and a hockey game broke out or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Well, that was a great story. Um, so let's jump into um, how, you know, I think you work with the CEOs and I know there's a lot of, um, you interview CEOs, you've asked them stories about how they cheated at golf, but you know, there's one thing, um, that I want to really dive into, especially for our listeners who are in corporate are, um, on the path to CEO are managing teams. What is, why do most CEOs that get to that level have an athletic background? How does that play a part? in their career? And what can young aspiring leaders today do to mimic some of those behaviors? Yeah, it does. I mean, there's, there's a great correlation. Even I did a story uh, 20 years ago, even about women executives uh, mm -hmm. that, I mean, women's sports weren't as widespread then, but the, but the women who were advancing were more likely to have an athletic background and more likely to have a team athletic background. And some of that's obvious, you know, you, you play in a team sport and there's a lot of things you have to learn. Uh, one, one of them, uh, I interviewed Larry Brown one time. He's the uh, NBA coach for Detroit and also uh, coached the Olympic team. It was kind of the dream team that kind of failed. Yep. It uh, went to the Olympics and everybody 
thought they would win every game by 30 points. And, and I think they wound up with the bronze or the silver. And I interviewed him one time and it, it applied so well to business is that you got to have the star players. You got to have the stars in business and you reward them by paying them more. But in return, they have to be humble around, you know, they, they can't be prima donnas because that's just going to screw up everybody else uh, working as a team. So you pay, you pay your star players more, but you expect them to be, be good team players. Uh, and that, that applies uh, to sports and, and business equally. So true. Yeah. So true. It's like having a team of a lot of, like I always use this phrase where you want to have a team, you can have a superstar team, but not a team of superstars that can perform. You know, having a bunch of great high paid players, put them together in a locker room, they can get along. You're not going to win. Yeah, and that that's that may be why they lost the Olympics that year. You know, they had all the NBA all NBA All Stars, and uh, you know all the collegiate All Stars were winning yeah. gold medals uh, easily at the Olympics, and then all of a sudden they brought in NBA All Stars, and they couldn't get the job done. So what would so you know? I mean, you're seeing a lot of teams. So what is it that great businesses do when they're building teams? How do they actually build a team around a few great star players? You know, everybody, you know, I've seen, I've seen your podcasts and everybody needs to work hard. It's like important that everybody gives the great effort, but there's also what they call B players. I mean, there's people that work hard that just are never going to be a players, but they're, they're important to every organization, not, not the low, you know, the C players. In fact, I interviewed Jack Welch, the former general electric CEO one time, and he was real controversial uh, because at that time he would, he would go through General Electric, which had this huge workforce, and he would want 10% of all General Electric's employees to be gone every year, that they would, they would be fired or they, or, yeah, the bottom 10%. And uh, I mean, that didn't go, I mean, kind of kept it a little bit of a secret. I, I imagine more CEOs actually probably do that without saying it. Uh, but, you know, he basically, he basically, I got him to talk about it. And he basically said that it's kind of compassionate because if somebody is on the job and they're just, they're not doing the job, they're not happy on the job and uh, it's hurting the organization. And his philosophy says, you know, they, they need to, they need to be going, do something else. You know, they might, I mean, they might actually be good workers if they were in another situation and he, he saw it as a, more of a compassionate move of like, why make these people like miserable for 20 years until retirement or something when, when they're not, when they're not performing. And, uh, and if, if I get rid of them, maybe they will be happy. Maybe they will find their niche somewhere else. I, I thought it was kind of an interesting perspective, kind of taking the, taking the spin of it's, it's not, it's not mean to do it. It's actually compassionate. Very interesting, right? Because I mean, I definitely see that point. It's, it's might as well be make make the choice that is not the most popular choice right now, but the right choice in his mind, right? Um, that's very. Yeah. Go ahead. And, and it and it helps the other people at the company. My, I mean, everybody working knows who who the slackers are, mm -hmm. and it hurt it hurts morale, especially if you're doing team projects. You know, you, every team has the free rider. You know, the people that do all the work and the free riders, Just and so everybody everyone. knows who they are. So it hurts. It hurts. It hurts the rest of the team when those people hang on as well. 
there, this also reminds me of, uh, of, you know, let's say football training camp. Every year you have to go and try out, even if you are a star player, unless you're the star quarterback for 10 years, you, everybody has to go and try out and you have to fight for the position every single year. And at the end of the training camp, there's a certain number of people or players that are let go, right? So some players, every, every year you may have been a star player last year, but you always see news that, you know, so-and-so team, NFL, CFL released, um, this running back or this this defensive lineman, and I, you know that's a very similar concept to what you're mentioning. Jack Walsh was saying it's like, hey, get rid of the bottom ten percent. You know, it, it might be something where in sports you can't perform. It's a very results-driven organization, and if you can actually measure results, um, I think that might be something that businesses could use. But the hard part is, how do you actually measure whether or not the results the individual got in business? are because this person's capability or is it because this person was not enabled to deliver results? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Great. And, and it's a point that I asked Jack Welch and he agreed. Uh, and there's and there's favoritism. I mean, if, if it's the managers that are kind of like, he, you make the manager rank everybody under them, like top 10% and yeah. bottom 10%, it can be a personality thing. You know, they, 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 there may be a high performer uh, that he puts in the bottom 10% just because there's a personality clash. Yeah. And, and Jack Welsh, you know, realized that that was a problem. Uh, but, but you're right. It comes out of sports. Jack Welsh was a football player yeah. uh, and, and a great golfer. He was one of the greatest CEO golfers ever. And so he was a good athlete himself. And I'm sure he kind of learned that principle from sports is that, is that when you're in sports, uh, you know, from junior high on, the, the the low performers get cut from the team. I mean, that's that's, that's and reality. That's it, hard. It hurts. Uh, you know, I've been there. It hurts to be cut from a team, but uh, you know, that's just the way sports are. There's also another thing that came to mind as you're you're um, touching on this, uh, Mr. Jones. It was some players will do really well in a certain system, but they will not perform that that level in a different system. So for example, if you are a defense in football, let's take an example, and you're built on really letting the defense the linebackers make the plays and the defensive line is there to keep the O-line away from the linebackers, right? A linebacker in that system will do very differently in performance, maybe great, maybe not so great, versus a system where the defensive linemen are actually asked to make plays versus keeping the the linebackers clean. This is where I think a lot of players also need to realize. Now I'm going back to the, you know, the leadership of emerging leaders. You have to be in a system or in a corporate organization that's going to allow you to play to your strengths because it doesn't mean you're a bad player. It means you're not in the right system. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. In fact, I have a personal story. When I was at USA Today, I had uh, one boss who was very hands-on uh, kind of wanted to know everything I was doing at every minute. He like sat, I don't know if you've seen a newspaper newsroom, but they're wide open and uh, you know, there's no yeah. offices and he's like sitting like two desks in front of me and all he has to do is get up and, and talk to me. And, and so I had this very hands-on uh, micromanager type uh, a boss. And then all of a sudden I got a new boss uh, who was not, was not only the opposite of this boss, but he was in New York. So instead of having a micromanaging boss two desks in front of me, I had a boss that I could go a week without exchanging emails with, wow. uh, and he was in New York. And so 
you know, and that, and that kind of bothered me a little because I was used to with this other boss of sending him like five story ideas and say like, which one do you think I should work on? You know, and, yeah. and then I would email this new boss kind of the same thing. And I would just get crickets, you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing back from him. And so one time I was with this, uh, Mark Greenberg, who is with Chubb insurance. Uh, he invited me to a Washington nationals baseball game one time. And we were sitting there and I, and I told, this is just when this was going on. And, uh, I, I, and I told him the story. I said, you know, it's kind of frustrating. Uh, I got this new boss that is just ignoring me. And he gave me the best advice I ever had. He said, if, if your boss is ignoring you, that means you're doing a good job because your boss, bosses spend all their time with problems. And so if he, you are not a problem if he is ignoring you. And I go, wow. And from that point on, that's when I like started writing these stories like, you know, I wouldn't with the other manager, I would have said, you know, I want to do this story on on CEOs who cheated golf. And he would he would might like he might like shoot it down like that's impossible. You're never going to get enough CEOs to talk about that. But with this new boss, I never even brought it up. I just worked the story. And then when I had enough for the story, then I would write kind of a synopsis of the story I wanted to do. And it would like sing, you know, it was like, you know, it would be like a really good synopsis of what I was going to do because I had the story reported, uh, but I wouldn't even tell him. And he would go, wow, that's, that sounds like a really good story. Go do it. And so then I would just write it because I had everything I needed to do the story. Yeah. And, uh, and in the meantime, I'd be working on something else I didn't tell him about and, uh, and being able to self-manage uh, in those, in that situation was, it just like, kind of turned my turned my career around i think it also forced you from what you're telling me to really grow into that leader because you had less oversight and you had to really manage yourself as your own boss yeah yeah and and i never i never did i don't think i would make a good manager i never led people but you're right uh there is a leadership ability in even if you don't want to be the boss to be the boss of yourself takes uh, takes leadership awesome. skills. Well, it's a great story. No, that's that's awesome. Um, before we end the end this episode, Mr. Jones, um, let's just if you can highlight your book, um, Case of the Bat, and where can people find it, and you know any other places that they can go and download the book or or buy it. Please, if you can share that. Yeah, it's on. It's in three at the bat. The strikeout, the shames, America is is in three versions on Amazon. You can get the Kindle, you can get the print book, and there's an Audible book that that I recorded, which I had a lot of fun doing, and uh, and that's on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble. And uh, and if you can't remember the name of the book, if somebody's driving and listening to this, if you go to Am- the Amazon site and search strikeout in their search bar, it's like. Uh, every time I've tried it, it's like in the first three hits uh, yeah. with, with just the word strikeout, which is kind of, it helps me market because I can tell people, oh, just go search strikeout. You know, they don't, they don't have to like write down this long title. Yep. So make sure you guys search Amazon with strikeout at the bat and please read the book. It's an amazing book. And where else can um, all of our listeners and viewers find you on social? Uh, primarily I'm on LinkedIn, you know, I, I've, I'm fairly active on Facebook, but that's primarily with friends and family. So I kind of steer any professional, uh, contacts to LinkedIn. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for jumping on. It was a, it was really great. I mean, I love the stories. I always love having someone who's, 
um, who can connect the sports, the executives, the, the leadership. I think you shared a great ton of stories here, and I'm sure all of our listeners are going to really take this advice back and apply it to their life. So thank you so much for jumping on. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tanvir. Enjoyed it. Great conversation. Great questions. Team, remember to like, subscribe, and share with a friend, and visit tanvirbengu.com for a ton of free content and exercises.